welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Serenity Prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I will not mind be done. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. And we are back for part two of what Tim B. calls Society 101. Good a, good a name for it as anything. Um, we, uh, we, this is part two, and uh, the first time we did some things, and I'm going to do a quick review, and then we're going to continue. We'll, we got up to page 66 in the white book last time, and we're going to continue for there. But but before we do that, um, would someone please read how it works, which is on page uh, 206 of your white book. I can do that. You said 206? Yes, sir. Starting off in the rarely. Yeah. yeah. I'm Lee Sexaholic. Hey, Rarely we have seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. They are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to be born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are, you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with lust, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Without it is too much for us, but there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as a, re- as a program of recovery. One, we admitted that we were powerless over lust, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, 
were entire, entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and we were wrong, and, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to prove our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to sexaholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaim, what in order, I can't go through with it. Don't be discouraged, no one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were sexaholics and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our sexualism. And C, that God could and would if he were soft. Thanks, Lee. Excuse me. I'm Steve, I'm a sexaholic. Thank you. Um, last time. Excuse me, I'm about to sneeze. Allergies. Last time we uh, we looked at a reading on page 77. I think it's a very important reading. Um, and just summarizing from that. Um, It says uh, in the first paragraph that the the basic text of the original 12-step program is the AA Big Book and the 12 and 12, and that this section of the White Book uh, on on the steps is not intended to replace those. So, um, you know, the idea that we can just use the White Book and, and throw the Big Book away is not what it says in the white book. So um, anyway, that's just, I think, an important thing. Um, then it goes on to say, you know, there's one sentence here that I think is really important. It says, everything begins with sobriety. Without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. Now, those are just two short sentences at the beginning of the paragraph, and it goes on to talk about what's beyond just uh, abstinence from from acting out, but I think it's worthy of repeating that sentence. Everything begins with sobriety. Without sobriety, there is no program of recovery. Everything that we're doing here is built on so, a foundation of sobriety. So we we if we're sexaholic, we cannot make progress in our spiritual um, uh, growth without sexual sobriety. So that's just very important to keep in mind. Um, and, um, and then it goes on to talk about working the principles of the steps as a new way of living is what has made not only sobriety, but the life that's recovered from all the wrong attitudes. And, and that's what keeps us sober is this, is this search for something that's beyond sobriety. If we just try to get sober and nothing else, then 
You know, we might make it, but we're probably going to fall short. If we reach for what's beyond it, then not only will we reach it, but we'll go into that new territory of a life uh, on a new basis for living. So um, um, then we went over to ch- uh, page 63, uh, step zero. And uh, this is uh, about participating in the fellowship. We cannot get sober without this fellowship. And for Roy, the founder, there were no SA meetings. He had to find fellowship in AA, which was not easy to do. He was not an alcoholic. Um, But he went in and he identified as a lust alcoholic. His alcohol was lust. And and that's the the, the history and the and the historical foundation of our program. Again, the connection to the AA literature is very important there. So uh, it starts off, and the reason um, the reason I think it's so important to go through the literature the way we're doing it now. It said at the beginning of what Lee read and how it works, and we're on page two hundred six. It says it tells tells the answer. If, if I'm not recovering. It tells me what the answer is. It says those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to the simple program. It says rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. The path is the steps. And if you want to look uh, in the big book with me sometimes, I can prove that to you. It's, it's in the book. You have to kind of go in some different places. But the path is the steps. The steps is the program of recovery. Uh, completely give themselves to this simple program. It says, and that's what following the path is, is to, is to give myself to that simple program. If I do that, I will recover. And then it goes on to say, if I haven't recovered, I haven't done that. You know, that's actually a logical tautology. Uh, it means the same thing, but it's turned around. But it tells me, if I'm not getting sober, then somehow I am not, uh, uh, you know, even if I think I am. That's where the second part says it's usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with, with themselves. In the disease state, I can't and or, or won't see the truth about myself. It's too painful. It, uh, it's not, it, it, it's not suited to my self-centered way of living. It, that, it can't support that. And if I, and that's the only way of living I knew. I was committed to that way of living. And so I couldn't be honest with myself. It would destroy my, my basis for living. Well, uh, my basis for living eventually destroyed itself. I became willing. I am intrinsically incapable of being honest with myself on my own power. When I'm living in self-centeredness, that's my power, and I can't be honest. And the only way is is to get some divine help. But this points the finger to where to the to puts puts the finger or uh, uh, my finger on the problem. The problem is my own way for living, my program for living. I have a program for living uh, before I come to SA. Now I have I have I have a a, a, a series a ritual of things that I do and things that I don't do and it has a result and the same thing is with the spiritual program so I stress that a lot the path is in our literature you know this instructions for working the steps are in the big book and the uh, important 
the features of uh, uh, lust recovery are in the white book. And so it's very important. I think if, if we're not getting some of the results of recovery, we can go through the writing in the literature step by step and say, okay, what have I not done? And so that's what we, we've begun to do with the white book. And so one of the things that it talks about in uh, page 63 and 64 is the commitment um, uh, and, and being committed to the recovery. I was committed to a lot of things before recovery. I was committed to, um, uh, sometimes I was committed to finding marijuana to smoke, or sometimes I was committed to making money, showing up to work. I didn't want to be there, but I, I wanted a paycheck, so I would go. And, you know, I was committed to it in varying degrees at varying times to my marriage. Um, and, and I make all kinds of commitments. It is part of my disease that I will find excuses not to make a commitment to things that will help me on the new basis. I'm, if I'm living self-centered, I'm going to look for things to support that way of living. And, and the, the thing that I, when I try to solve the problem, I try to solve it by finding a way that I can control. You know, but, but the problem is me. So anytime I do that, I am trying to solve the solution with the problem. I'm the problem. And so I'm trying to solve the problem. Well, that just is the problem trying to fix itself. And that's pretty goofy. And that's, that describes my life uh, before recovery. And uh, maybe even a little bit of it during recovery. Uh, I'm not uh, finished uh, learning how to live on a new basis. But um, so um, that commitment is something I've got to do. I've got to learn how to change my commitment over. Um, so all that desperation and determination that I used to pursue lust, now I've got to turn it in a new direction. The next thing it says on page 64 is we stop. And it talks about we stop feeding lust. And it gives some specific instructions here about the kinds of things we have to do. Um, and... Um, and again, it points uh, to, uh, it says the fringe benefits of going to a lot of meetings is that it gets us out of ourselves. My sponsor will never hesitate to point out uh, in different places that this is not a substitute for the steps. Some people try to do that. Go to lots of meetings and not work the steps. Um, and then on page 65 and 67, it talked about the importance of getting involved, sharing, uh, bringing the inside out. Um, uh, br- bringing the shameful secret into the light uh, and and taking actions that make us feel a part of quite different from that empty, lifeless feeling of being apart from. So, you know, I mean, that, that feeling of self-pity and loneliness and shame and unworthiness can be summed up by feeling apart from. That empty, lifeless feeling is what it says. And, and sometimes it's worse than empty and lifeless. Sometimes it's just painful in my experience. But feeling a part of is, is something magical happens. Uh, and, and you know, the, the magic, people often miss little words in, in, the, in the text that make a huge difference. I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to miss one word in this, in, in this text that, you know, that could be the word that saves my life. People often misquote, uh, the thing and how it works where it says, uh, you know, that they say what it used to be like, what happened and what it's like now. That's not what it says. That's not in our literature. It says what we used to be like, what happened and what 
we are like now. And the reason that's important is because it doesn't change. I'm the one who changed. This thing about feeling a part of isn't because y'all do something different. It's because I take actions and the change occurs inside of me. And now I see that I'm a part of. So that's that's very important. And um, one of the it says here where the magic is, it begins with the feeling of identification where I can see myself in you. I can see that I'm not different from you. I can find all sorts of ways to compare my insides with what I see on your outsides. And it will never match up. I can always find those differences, and that will increase my feeling of being apart from. But uh, if, if I can look for the commonalities, if I can identify instead of compare, it can bring me into the light. And okay, so last time we, we were on page 66, and we had stopped reading, I believe, where it says what dignity there is in that total acceptance. So today we'll start uh, uh, continuing on. But before we do that, is there anyone who'd like to share uh, uh, anything? I'm Lisa Collick. Hey, Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I like what you said about living sobriety, living the program, <clears throat> and not when you just entered the rooms. I obviously struggle with that. It's like I make a point to start my day off from praying to reading, you know, get my phone calls in during the day. But then it seems like somewhere midweek, you know, busy life gets a hold of me and I drop off within the program. And that, that's been difficult to deal with. And, and also the feeling of um, overwhelming. Um, of, of doing all this can be very over, overwhelming and tiring. Not tiring in a bad way, not, but just, you know, I have one more thing I have to worry about, one more thing I have to be responsible for in life, um, which is selfishly life of life. But it can just be struggling. I agree. I agree. Um, and, uh, you know, I've got to find a way to where recovery isn't one more thing because I never had trouble, no matter how busy I was, finding time and room in my life for lust. And I never will. If I'm living on the old basis, I will always find time for it. That's the nature of uh, sexaholism and it's the nature of a self-centered basis for living. When If I want to change, I've got to make this my new... Uh, you know, basis, which means I got to have everything else in my life built on top of that. I don't find a way, I, if I try to find a way to squeeze my recovery into the cracks and give it the leftovers of my schedule, it's a waste of time, I believe. Uh, I've ser- sure seen people try to do that without success a lot. I hope I never do that experiment. It would be insane for me to do that, but that has not stopped me from other experiments. So um, I need the power that I get in these rooms. I've got to make this the basis of my living or I'm, I'm toast. Um, and the overwhelming thing is, the reality is, is when I look at the effort that I put into staying sober, into pursuing my recovery, I work, I work much harder pursuing lust. Now, I was getting some immediate payoff, and so in a way it seemed easy. But 
it was easy. Uh, you know, it was easier, but it was not softer. <laughs> Ultimately, it was not easy. I mean, it it it, um, it it was a lie. It's like a worm thinking. I mean, it's like a fish thinking he'll get a meal if he bites on that worm. But there's a hook inside that worm. And he gets a trip to the frying pan now. He gets to taste the worm for a while while he's on the way to the frying pan. But is that a good deal? No sane person would take that deal. And yet I took that deal over and over and over. There's something wrong with my brain. So, um, so yeah, um, it is, it is hard. If it weren't hard, we would have done it a long time ago and we wouldn't have to come here. <laughs> We wouldn't we wouldn't have to do that. So that half measures thing is like that's part of the I, w- I won't give that up until I am broken. You know, the half measures is is self is my is this my is the self way of doing things. It's like it suits me. I will give what I want to give in order to get it. You know, I won't. You know, I, or or even if I give more than I want to give, I'll say, okay, well, this is what I should need to give. And so, if I don't get it in return with that, well, then that's just not fair. And I can think all that way I want. It, but reality is is <laughs> what determines, you know, what happens. And so, anyway, um, any any other any other shares? Volunteer to start reading. Okay, I think where it says the first test, yes. The first test, surrender. Joining a group doesn't automatically make the problem vanish. Most of us had tried stopping countless times. The problem was we couldn't stay stopped. We had never surrendered. So the first time the craving hits again, when we get that urge for a fix, we give it up, even though it feels like we'll die without it. And at times, in our new frame of mind, the craving may seem stronger than ever, but we don't fight it like we used to. That was always a losing battle, giving it more strength to fight back. Neither do we feed or give in to it. We surrender. We win by giving up each time. Coming off our habit can be confusing. My head turns automatically. I can't help feeding it. I don't have any choice. But we always fed our habit. We simply weren't aware of it. So whenever this happens, we simply acknowledge our powerlessness. Instead of either fighting or indulging, we surrender. We pick up the phone. We ask for help. We go to a meeting. We even admit we may not fully want victory over lust. Most of us don't have pure motives in wanting to get sober. Recovery is a slow process. Pass. The first time we walk through the the stress of withdrawal without restoring to the resorting to the drug, we discover that we don't die without that fix. Instead, we feel better, stronger, that that maybe there's hope. We talk about the temptation in a phone call or at the next meeting and tell all. Telling the deep truth and an attitude of surrender helps break the power the memory of the incident holds over us. And if and if we're hit with lust again, we keep coming back and talking it out, regardless of how shameful and defeated we feel. We've all been there. We know how it feels. We also know the release and joy that surrender brings us when we come back into the light. Usually, we find that our initial surrender 
was incomplete and we began to see some loose ends. We discovered some rain checks secretly stashed against future need, like alcoholics hiding their bottles. It's her key. I can't throw that away. I'll keep his phone number. I may be able to help him sometime. I'll get rid of the magazines later. In recovery, we simply throw that stuff away. No one has to tell us. We just know. We always knew. We just never had the power to let them go. Actually, hey, Frank. The next test. Hey, Frank, time out. Before we go on, um, thanks, but I, I wanted to share a little something here about surrender. Um, I've known a number of people who have struggled with the concept of surrender. And they're just like, I can't figure out this surrender thing. What is it? Um, you know, the the, the uh, friend of mine heard, heard uh, someone in a meeting who was new, new to AA say, I'm having a hard time getting a grip on letting go. And, um, you know, letting go, you can't get a grip on it. You know, you've got to let go. You know, if you're trying to get a grip, you're not letting go. And so I think surrender comes without trying to figure surrender out. If I'm trying to figure surrender out, then it's just something to do while I'm not surrendering. And and um, there are a lot of things in the white book on surrender, and this is one of them. Um, uh, but there are a number of other things. Uh, there's something on page 70, something on page 73, something on page 76, Page 79, page 81, 83, 84, oh, I missed 80, uh, 85, and 86. And uh, that's just, you know, I'm, I'm going through looking for things on surrender. There's a lot in this book on surrender. Um, so it talks about uh, surrender, but it, then it gives ex- specific examples of actions. We pick up the phone, we ask for help, we go to a meet, meeting, we even admit we may not fully want uh, victory over lust. And so, again, if I'm having trouble staying sober, I want to look at these instructions and see if there's something I missed. If I, uh, you know, if, if I'm not having trouble with staying sober and I don't want to have trouble again, <laughs> then it's good for me to look at these instructions and, and, and make sure there's not something I missed. Because uh, as, as we've been told before, it's easier to stay sober. And to get sober. Okay, fine. Thank you. More uh, on No, I'm just trying to remember back. I know that the whole. I really think my drug of choice, or at least my reg, my go-to, um, the bottle that was always there, that was always full, it was just fantasy. For me, I I didn't didn't realize how constant it was until I, I mean, it's like an IV in my life or something, you know, that I just didn't know about until I needed to stop masturbating. That's really, I mean, the needed to stop the masturbation. I found out that I just, that wasn't going to happen if I didn't shut off that constant IV of fantasy going through my head. And, um, I still, I remember praying. I still don't know why the fantasies would leave or why they do now. Sometimes they do. Sometimes I have to do more concrete things. Um, I mean, if, if I'm 
seems like my most difficult time of fantasy is in the bed. Just kind of mindlessness. And if I'm not going to sleep, then my mind is running anywhere. And um, usually, just kind of without, it's kind of just kind of running background music or something. But um, so if I if I find myself in sexual fantasy or whatever, which is not unusual, um, surrender is usually something concrete. It sounds passive, but you know, start out with prayer. Sometimes I'll try to think of something, try to change my train of thought to go to something different, something that's going on that day. If that doesn't chase it, then I'll I've usually got literature on my bedside table, and so I can pick up. I can't. It's hard for me. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's difficult to read something, anything, but um. And still carry on a sexual fantasy. My mind's going to be one of the two places, and um, so I'll keep recovery continues or a white book there so I can read them. And that's usually like a option three or four, you know. After a, after a couple have already been unsuccessful, and um, anyway, it happens, and. Um, other times, just getting up, getting, if I'm sitting there and my mind won't get out of the fantasy or keeps wanting to go back into it or find a new fantasy um, or memory or whatever, sometimes I just need to get up, just walk, go find something else to do for a few minutes and then um, go back. So, that's what I was thinking of. Thanks. Thanks sure. <clears throat> Sooner or later, the earth strikes again. Sometimes out of nowhere, like a tidal wave scratching over us. Wham! Maybe the first time we feel rejected. Any countless triggers can do it. It really doesn't matter what they are. They all have them. It's too overpowering. No one will know the difference. I look that we're killed anyway. Everyone's doing it. Never thought I'd hear from them again. Now what I'll do. Often it gives us privacy or innermost thoughts. When we're alone, we're living inside our head and the emotions could never face overwhelm us. So what do we do? Naturally, we want to reach for the drug again. That's what we program ourselves, what we program ourselves to do. Instead of surrender, again, just like the first time, the cry for help goes up again. I'm powerless. Please help me. And we take the action of getting out of ourselves and making contact with another member. As soon as possible, the closer to the heat of the action, the better. We use the thumb. We make the call. Not because we want to, because we don't want to. The call because we have to. Our survival instinct comes to life. And we go to a meeting as soon as possible. When we first come to the program, this cry for help is, in fact, a shotgun working steps one, two, and three. Surrender of whatever sort. That's all it takes. And not one of us does it with all the right motives. 
And the craving hits again, we repeat this surrender to the very thought of our terror, the pit of our hell. That's where the admission of powerlessness really works, when we're in the raw heat of temptation and craving. Again, it's the change of attitude that begins relief. Instead of, I've got to have, have it or die, attitude becomes, I give up. I'm willing not to have it, even if I do die. And we don't die. We get a reprieve. Again, seconds, minutes, hours, even days and weeks. The tidal wave is spent. The craving passes, and we're okay. We're learning, learning the truth of the program maxim one day at a time. But there's another wave behind it, and sooner or later we get hit again. We may not, this may not be soft balance. Well, we still recover it after each bout. Get off guard by the next wave. Often we're seeing we stop backing out our habit for a time feel free of it forever. Maybe may just be the time it strikes again. So real realization slowly dawns that maybe certainly temptation powerlessness over lust. Come to see it's alright to be tempted and feel absolutely powerless over it as long as we can get the power to overcome. This fear of vulnerability gradually diminishes as we stay sober and work the steps. We look forward to the time when the obsession, not the temptations, will be gone. We begin to see that there's no power for the craving in advance. We have to work this as it happens each time. Therefore, each temptation, every time we want to give in to lust at it, or any negative promotion is get towards recovery, healing, and freedom. Another opportunity to change our attitude and find union with God. We didn't get here in a day. It took practice to learn the addictive process in our being. It takes practice to make our true connection. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, the next test and the next, and it has a dot, dot, dot. You know, and that's what this is about. It's about the dot, dot, dot. Um, it says throughout this, it talks about powerlessness and uh, getting the power to overcome. It's too overpowering. Um, there's no power over the craving in advance. Um, page 45 of the big book talks about lack of power being my dilemma. And I think the, the important thing... Uh, to realize is that it's not lack of anything else. That's my dilemma. It's lack of power. It's not lack of having a job. It's not lack of having a relationship. It's not lack of getting my way or, or having money to pay the rent. It's lack of power. It's not lack of intelligence. I hear people say, gosh, that was stupid. It's like, you know, lack of intelligence is not my dilemma. You know, it, it's, it's lack of power. And so, this is about a, a change in my attitude towards living to where on a daily basis I'm looking for the power. Just like, you know, I mean, I've never had to go without food in my life. I'm very fortunate. So I don't know what it would like be like to, to, to live on the basis of, well, I need to find out what I'm going to eat today. And that being like my number one 
a job for the day. But many people live that way today even, and, and certainly that was the way everyone would have had to live at some point in the past. And that is the way I have to, to live with regards to this program. It has to be my number one priority. Where am I going to find the power I need to, to, act, uh, to not act out, to stay sober? Uh, and um, it, it comes from uh, seeking God, and how do I do that today? I've got to keep doing some things that I've done yesterday, but I've got to, you know, I just have to keep my eyes and ears. Do I want to do that? No, but that's what living sober requires. And so uh, it's worth it. I need the help that I get from you all and from God. I couldn't do this alone, but um, it's definitely worth it. Um, and it says it took practice to burn the addictive process into our being. It takes practice to make our true connection. I'm not doing anything in my recovery that I didn't do for my lust. I'm not. I mean, I sought, I, I did more for my lust. I sought all the time. I was always willing to, you know, when push came to shove, I didn't want to give up my marriage or my freedom or all those things, but I put them on the line over and over and over again. And then one day, finally, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the shoe dropped. And, and, um, you know, I don't, I don't have to pay nearly such a high cost for recovery uh, as, as I paid for my disease. So I can easily get focused on how difficult it is for me to do this program of recovery, and I don't want to have to do this, blah, blah, blah. I think that's just normal uh, for, for uh, you know, someone living on a self-centered basis. I mean, that's the way I think about things is how they affect me and how they relate to what I want. And that's what I've got to change, if, if, but I can't. So that's what I've got to let God, I've got to take the actions, I've got to seek the things, that let God change that in me, and then I find that I have not power of my own, but I have access to His power. And when I have access to that power today, then I can stay sober today. It's just like... A, uh, a branch staying connected to the vine. If the branch is disconnected from the vine, there's no life in it. If the branch is connected to the vine, then the branch can bear fruit. And if I want to, to take, to spend my uh, attention and efforts wisely, I need to spend it making sure that I stay connected to the vine. That's a branch whose, whose life is really going to go somewhere. And, you know, I have just, uh, that's such a simple idea. Such a simple idea. And it's very, it's very powerful. Uh, you know, <laughs> the power that's in the branch and in the vine. And, and so the effect of living on the basis of that idea is very powerful and it's surprising to me still. I don't know, I don't know why it should be, but it still surprises me how, how, how much life and, and power and a joy that little practice can bring. So, okay. Um, anyone else? On the next test, next text dot 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 section. Okay, so you want to go on with the thief? Lord, the breathe. At the first sign of relief from the obsession, 
we may get complacent. Once we've learned to live without the most obvious stuff, we may sit back and relax, take it easy. It's like the switch just turned off. Sobriety's a snap. There's nothing to it. We may feel as though the obsession was really something foreign to us, pulled out like a thorn from a finger, that we can remain unchanged with the same attitudes and thinking as before. I'll just get out of here and go see that movie. I can always close my eyes on the bad scenes. Like it or not, that's the way many of us seem to do it. By degrees. Instead of running joyously to heaven, we seem to back away from our hell one step at a time. Thus, often shying away from full slips, some of us think we can allow ourselves partial slips, enjoying the temporary relief they bring, testing our limits. We have all sorts of strategies for denial. They start looking around, just free enough of the compulsion to start noticing what's out there again. And we see that everyone seems to be doing what we can no longer get away with. We feel the pull of it inside. How can anything that looks and feels that good be so bad for me? A sadness may come over us. We may find it hard to go to sleep. We may get fidgety, feel at a loss, feel empty, not knowing what's wrong. The old inner panic hits again, and we reach for our drug. That's when we get into action again. The pain, not to mention the fear of falling, jolts us into reality. We go to a meeting, get on the phone, contact someone we trust. We get out of ourselves and and get moving. If I stay inside my head now, I'm dead. Again, we acknowledge that we are powerless over the obsession, only now we may add a little more to our cry of desperation. Please help me, thy will not mine be done. And another breath of relief and comfort comes. Reprieve again. Respite. Even though we may be lulled into complacency again, this is a moment of inner peace, the likes of which we never knew before. We can be deceived because we we may have surrendered on a full stomach. We just finished a destructive bow and sworn off never again, and we meant it. Didn't we always? But the very next time we have the urge and the wave breaks over us again, knocking us off our feet. We don't act out our habit. We don't resort to our drug. One day at a time, one hour at a time, sometimes one minute at a time. And the craving passes. Surrender is a constant thing. Practice. Day by day, hour by hour. Put into practice so often it becomes habitual. That's how we get the attitude change that lets the grace of God enter to to expel the obsession. Okay, reprieve. Um, You know, this is probably uh, a a very deliberate allusion to uh, page 85 in the big book where it talks about the daily reprieve that we have from our spiritual uh, disease. And a reprieve is a stay of execution, meaning that I've been sentenced to... I've got a death sentence, but I've got uh, something. The governor or the king has ordered that I... Hold on, don't don't kill him just yet. And that's what a reprieve is. And and I can have it every day if I do this. Um... And um, 
you know, we, you know, we can we can uh, remain unchanged, uh, which is not going to, if we have the same attitudes and thinking uh, as before. They have a saying uh, that that if nothing changes, nothing changes. Um, it talks about. Um, uh, Thy will not mine be done. It talks about um, uh, surrender as a constant thing. Um, we've got to keep doing it over and over. Now, um, why, why, do, why do, in your experience, why, why do we um, back away from hell one step at a time? Instead of running joyously to heaven, what's your experience? That do you have a, an idea about what what causes us to do that? Anyone? Anything in your experience? Do you do you identify it? Maybe maybe this is not about us. More. So like, hey, Lord. I identify a lot of this. Um, I'm not on the next page talking about feeling the pull of it, looking around and um, noticing what's out there. Um, I think that there's a part of me that I know the big book talks about not being able to recall from a week ago or whatever the pain and stuff like that forgetfulness of um, all I can remember is the immediate gratification and I don't either I forget or choose not to remember or whatever the, the pain that comes after the acting out because um, honestly I'm not sure I saw it as hell and while I was in it I knew that yeah, it wasn't hell until it just stopped working, or the, or the consequences got extreme, or whatever. I'd been in it too long, and it was all I knew. And um, knew that I didn't like where I was, but didn't know it, didn't know how to get out of it either. There was a lot of unknown. Still is a lot of unknown, you know. I've got ideas in my head of what a spiritual path would look like, and not all of them are attractive. Um, I probably would not have pursued it as much as I have pursued it, apart from seeing at work and other people, and specifically people that had my problem. It's one thing to see it. And other people out there, and I don't, as far as I can tell, they don't have any problems. But it's another thing to come in these rooms and hear people's story at a newcomer meeting and relate to it and know that they're, they were in a similar, similar place as I've been and they're somewhere else now. And that's when I'm like, what the heck's going on with that? Um, I need to know about it because I don't, I don't believe it, but you're saying it's happened, and you're, you know, to some degree I see it in your life, and so I'm willing to go that direction. 
Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. I'm Lisa Collett. Hey, Lee. Um, I don't know, lately I've been feeling like <clears throat> I'm working in the essay program for God and not for myself. I don't know how much the thought's a good thing, bad thing. <laughs> I don't know. I, I know that living the life that I keep living without essay is a spiritual death and possibly a physical death a lot sooner than whenever, you know, God thinks the time for me to go. But I, I don't know if I have enough love for myself right now to be like, I don't want that versus wanting to please God. Um, and I guess pleasing God maybe goes back to how I've always felt wanting to please others. Um, I don't know. Um, but I also want that promise in step 12, a spiritual awakening. I mean, that sounds great. I have no idea what that is. No idea what that is. Because I've never experienced anything like that. Um, the religious being, the religious background I came from, I wasn't really raised to believe that there were spiritual awakenings, that God worked every day. It was kind of like, and God did this, and God did that with Jesus, and, and made a point. So here's some rules, follow it, and if you do it, you go to heaven. If you don't, you go to hell. There, was, there wasn't anything of, you know, God and Holy Spirit able to fill you in a moment, in a day, in a second. Uh, that's a new concept for me. I don't disbelieve it. It's just hard for me to wrap around it and see it. So that spiritual awakening, that promise in step 12, I would like to get there. Um, it's going to be one hell of a journey, but I don't have any other option right now. One heaven of a journey. Or one heaven of a journey. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> uh, hey, it's better than the F word that was used last night. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's all I got. Thanks. Thanks, Well, there's another thing I want to ask you all a question about, and that's on page 70 where it says, a sadness may come over us. We may find it hard to go to sleep. We may get fidgety, feel at a loss, feel empty, not knowing what's wrong. The old inner panic hits again, and we reach for a drug. Um, anybody relate to that? That's something you've experienced? Yeah, I'm more of a sexaholic. I definitely relate to it. Um, I relate to it on, it sounds familiar too. The passage, maybe multiple passages in the big book that are coming to my mind when I hear it. And the whole concept, I relate to all of it. Um, it reminds me of that passage that talks about the, the boy whistle in the dark to keep his spirits up. And he can't imagine his life with or without alcohol. Um, I hear that in that reading and relate to that. Because um, the reality is, if I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm working the steps with the purpose of getting a spiritual experience, but I don't have it in the moment. I don't have it while I'm working the fourth step. I'm getting knowledge about myself. And I'm changing patterns in my life, but I haven't had. I may have had. I may be in the beginnings of a spiritual experience, and maybe 
waking up, becoming aware of things. I'm just not free of the obsession yet. I'm not totally re- re- returned to to sanity. And um, and and on the worst days, I'm just raw and completely unmedicated. And so I'm more prone to just feel the whole spectrum of human experience more intensely than I'm used to experiencing it um, when I was escape, escaping from life and numbing, deliberately numbing myself from life. And um, and so that's what, uh, man, I totally relate to that sadness and feeling empty, um, just being absolutely out of sorts in my own skin. And, um, and unfortunately, that's part of it because my life is revolves around my feelings <laughs> <laughs> on so many levels. My feelings are the, the most re- reality that I experience. And um, it's, pro- it's not necessarily... Accurate, but it's it's the most real thing that I that I know of. You know, coming in, I have to learn through a through the process that they are gonna, that my feelings in the moment are going to change. If I just stick with it for another hour, there's a good chance it'll change. If I can if I can hang in there for a day, there's a good chance it's going to change. The situation's going to change, whatever. But my feelings ultimately aren't static, and um, and it's a, it's very much a learning process to figuring that out and and just weathering the <clears throat> weathering the onslaught of the feelings, um, you know, with the help of other people in the program. And um, a growing connection with God, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. The uh, um, you know, for me, in hearing what you're saying, the program is kind of like braces. You know, it's like they keep me from going the way I'd naturally go. <laughs> to naturally go, I would follow my feelings, and that would drive what how I make my decision. And and the 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 program, the actions in the program, sort of put a boundary on that you know I still have feelings and they still have an influence on what my choices are they're not the most important thing today if I if I'm if I'm you know having a a, a successful day that's how I define success do I keep living the way I'm supposed to live today that's success today used to be do do I feel the way I want to feel today I'm not feeling the way I want to feel today it's a crappy day but now I, I say, if I'm not feeling the way I want to feel, then I'm taking the, right, the, the actions, the best actions that I know how to take. Then, then it's a day well spent, even if I don't feel good today. And, and so that's, that's, I think, the new basis. That's, when I'm on a new basis for living, I have a different definition of success. Um, I have good days and bad days regardless. I, I, that was always the case, um, you know, before recovery, and it's still the case now. Um, in terms of how I feel, you know, I'll feel some days I feel good, some days I feel bad. But if I 
do what I need to do today, then it's a day well spent, and it leads to to a, a you know a good day tomorrow, and um, I can keep doing what I need to do. And life life just turns into something as I do that. It turns into something good. It was it's progressive. Recovery is progressive. Same way the disease is progressive. It got progressively worse. The recovery gets progressively better. So, I mean, obviously I want to keep doing that. Um, with regards to these feelings, there's, there's uh, you know, there's a connection here. The sadness, hard to sleep, all these symptoms, uh, fidgety, uh, emptiness, um, uh, confusion, panic. Those symptoms are withdrawal symptoms. That's why I acted out to cover up, so I wouldn't have to feel those feelings. And so now I, I, I can, for a while I, I can live with, well, now I have to feel these feelings, but I need to, I, I want to get to the point, and I do get to the point where I, I say instead of I have to feel these feelings, I get to feel these feelings. These feelings are part of living, and when I feel them, in the context of a life where I'm seeking, you know, the the right the right uh, action, the right choice, they gradually come to be a helpful part of that life. Um, and so, uh, but I if I expect to not feel these feelings, then I'm going to have a hard time because, I mean, if if I have coped with these feelings might uh, with with lust all my life, and then I take that old coping strategy away. I am they are going to be there, and I'm either going to have to find a new way to cope with them, or I'm going to go back to my old way. There's no there's no uh, there's no way otherwise, and I think that's where the source of my powerlessness is. I cannot constantly feel this way without taking an action. To change that, and and if my action isn't based on this, uh, you know, seeking how to, how to live a God-centered life today, it's gonna it's going to go back to to the old way. So to me, that's a really important thing. Any 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 other thing about that whole section on reprieve? What about the thing where it says? We may have surrendered on a full stomach. We just finished a destructive bout and sworn off never again, and we meant it. What is that never again? What am I doing when I say never again? I'm making a decision. I'm never going to do this again. That's never an effective decision. If you look on page 39 of the big book, that's what happens. There's a guy named Fred. And if you look at the bottom, it says, he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. That's what happened. He said, never again. And then it sends a, uh, spends a few pages telling us what happened next. I have a friend in Nashville who calls this the ineffective decision. It's something I can't do. I can't say never again. I can't make up. I can't successfully quit Drinking, I can't successfully stop acting out. If I could, then I wouldn't be a sexaholic. Um, and then over on page 42, um, you know, he goes through. He, we get to see how that, that decision worked to, to, to quit drinking altogether, to never again. 
Uh, and then over 42, my friend in Nashville calls this the effective decision. At the Again, at the bottom of the page, he says, but the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, that was the effective decision. I made up my mind to quit drinking altogether, ineffective. I made up my mind to go through with the process, effective. Look, listen to what happens. I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Really, there is no other problem. My spiritual malady is, is the basis of everything wrong with my life. My approach to living. Me being the problem and me trying to be the solution. That's my problem. So when I'm trying to solve the problem, that's the problem. The problem isn't the thing that I'm focusing on and trying to solve. The problem is that I'm the one in the, in the, in the subject of that sentence. You know, I can't successfully solve my problem when I'm my problem. So the disease is all about getting me distracted. I get focused on solving my money problem or my relationship problem or my health problem. Those aren't my problems. My problem is that I think those are my problems. And the problem is that I'm the one trying to be the solver. So that's the decision that's effective. Is that, so this whole never again, that's, that's uh, that we saw on page uh, 60-70 of the white book. You know, and you know, that, that, that is, you know, here, 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 here they're talking about when I have power. When I have the power, it says the very next time we have the urge and the way breaks, we don't act on our habit. We don't resort to our drug. That's not because we decided never again. You know, it's it's because we've really surrendered. We've really surrendered, and we've really uh, uh, taken actions to get the power to overcome. And that's that's when the, you know. If I'm if I'm a hopeless sexaholic, then I I gotta have that power. Okay, let's see. I just think we could we could stop soon. I don't think we're gonna get to the end of this section today. What do you all think? Do you wanna? Go on for some more. Do you have something you want to share now? Game for your Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm Lisa Collins. Hey, Lee. We get a glimpse of ourselves. Perhaps we we weather the first several waves of lust or temptation in which are all, and then think we have it under control. Maybe we take a look in the mirror, meeting in contact with other members in a way of helping us be ourselves. We start getting into insights into what the habit has been doing to us, to our bodies, emotions, abilities to function, will to live, families, jobs, money, time. We begin seeing things inside us that we've been using the drug to cover over. Why can't I let go of this terrible resentment? How could I have put my wife through that agony again? As dim outlines of our sick patterns emerge, we continue changing our attitudes. We start looking at ourselves. For the first time, the truth dawns on us. Every time we are disturbed, 
no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. If somebody hurts us and we are sore, we are we are in the wrong also. Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, page ninety. We also began to detect some of our more sub, sub, subtle uh, rationalizations. I'm in the neighborhood. I'll just go by and say hi. I'll call the old relationship and tell him I'm in the program. I'll just take a glance to see if it's something I shouldn't be looking at. We may even find ourselves cruising the old haunts or flirting for no special reason, of course. Maybe I'll just be swept off my feet and overwhelmed so I won't be responsible, we think. Such attitudes can persist in sobriety. Though we keep hearing half measures avail us nothing, we go through the phase where they seem to avail us something. Apparently, we have to see this for ourselves and at our own pace, even if we fall flat in our faces. Thus, in the flesh of newfound sobriety and success, we can be setting ourselves up for a fall. Lust is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and very patient. But if we want recovery, we keep coming back. This may be the time many of us start thinking seriously about the program, about what the program is all about. We may have been surviving hit and miss on the first part of step one and maybe bits and pieces of a few others, but we're not going anywhere. Maybe we've even slipped and are hurting and don't know what hit us or what to do about it. Confusion and puzzlement reign. I believe in the steps. What's wrong? Why isn't this working for me? We're sitting there staring into space and it dawns on our dullness. The steps won't work for me unless I work them. Up to this point, recovery may have been just a compulsive addiction, but there comes a time when this isn't enough. It's just too uncomfortable. We begin to see that the obsession and compulsion acting out are only symptoms of our underlying spiritual illness. Even the fellowship isn't enough. We have to get to the source of the pro- problem ourselves. Instead of that subconscious and insidious attitude, please fix me as though some other person or group could do the recovery for us. We take responsibility for our own recovery. We start working the steps. Effective decision. Yeah, um, thanks, Lee. Um, the rationalizations. I really like that. Um, What's going on when I come up with a rationalization? What's the truth? Huh? An excuse. So, what does the excuse do for me? Justifies. It justifies. Justifies what? Uh, my action. It justifies my action. What's the real reason? Rationalization is about giving a reason. What's the real reason I do this action? You want to act out? Yes. No, I don't want to admit that to myself. Because I'm not the kind of guy who you know, who does that stuff. I, I want it, like it says, maybe I'll just be swept off my feet and overwhelmed so I won't be responsible. That's right. You know, I want to act out. Why do I want to act out? Why? Why? Why do I want to act out? To feel better. That could be one reason. Stress. Relieve stress. To relieve stress. What else? You're in control. I'm in control. 
um, maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, can't get sleep. You know, maybe I've got you know nerves. Uh, you know, I'm having a little panicky feeling. Maybe um, I just got some really good news and I'm happy. All of these are just rationalizations after the fact, maybe, or maybe that's they have something to do with with triggering it. But the real reason I act out is because I'm a sexaholic. That's what sexaholics do. They act out. So when I'm in my sexaholism and I'm living on that old basis, then that's my reality. That's my identity. I am a sexaholic. I act out. Now, when I change my basis for living, I'm still a sexaholic. But I get to live the miracle of not acting out. And, and so, these rationalizations can go very far. I mean, I was in an AA meeting once where there was somebody sharing. He had a resentment, and we're, every, you know, the topic was resentments and talking about how you, there's no such thing as a justified resentment and so forth. Well, this guy was sharing, and he was trying to convince everyone that he had a justified resentment. You know, I know there's, he was saying, I know what it says in the book, but this happened, and she did that, and then this happened, and, you know, and, and there was a guy sitting next to me, and he had a sponsee with him. And he just looked over to his uh, sponsee and said, he's talking about getting drunk. The guy was talking about resentment. But he was rationalizing and justifying and fortifying that resentment. And this guy just pegged it as, that's talking about getting drunk. So when I'm in, in these thoughts where I'm rationalizing something that I don't need to do, I'm thinking about acting out. That's what I'm doing. I'm talking about getting drunk. And that this disease is about that kind of self-deception. It's that clever. It's that insidious. It works beneath the radar. So, these rationalizations... Uh, these are these are it says these are some of our more subtle rationalizations. Uh, I, I think there are even more subtle ones, uh, but basically all rationalizations lead to the same thing: me not taking the action that the program directs me to take, me not uh, following through on the effective decision. Men and women who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. All rationalizations have the same thing. The reason I don't work the program, if I fail to work the program, the real reason is because I want to act out. Even if, well, if I wanted to act out, what would I do being in this meeting? Well, that's sure, that's true. You know, but the reason I come to meetings, the reason I do things in half measures is so I can make the case that I didn't want to. <laughs> but really, 
I want to. Somewhere in underneath in all, all my confused little head is that that idea is driving things when I'm living on the old basis. So, can I ask a question? So if, if like when I when I fail to work my program for the day because of how busy I feel, is, is that subconsciously me wanting to act out? I would say yes. Now. Do I know? Can I read your mind? Can I, you know, even if I had a brain scan, I don't know what's going on in your mind, but I believe if you take that as your hypothesis, it will lead you to choices that will, will, will uh, help you get sober. You know, so it's not a question about what's the real truth in the, bio, the neurochemical thing. I, I have no idea. I, if I'm wrong, that it, it, it can't hurt you to make that assumption. You know, it, it, the idea is is that when I don't want to work my program, and I'm starting to think of reasons why I I I I, I don't need to. The disease. There's a rattlesnake in my bed. There there is there there is the smell of electrical wires burning in the walls. I can't see it, but. That is how the disease works. The disease doesn't just jump out and go boo. It just nudges. There's a story about a frog, and I like animals, so I don't like this story. I don't eat frogs. But apparently, if you take a frog and you throw it into boiling water, it will really freak out. It will make a horrible noise, and it will try to get out of the water. If you take a frog and you put it in nice warm lukewarm in nice warm water and slowly heat it up to boiling, it'll just swim around in there comfortably until it's cooked. It will never have an alarm trigger that says, "Oh, I've got to get out of here." So what I want to do is I want to rewire my alarm to where I recognize something like that, just a little innocent impulse. Oh, I don't want to, uh, you know, do my prayers tonight, or I don't want to, you know, um, answer the phone, or I don't want to make that phone call. I, I, I'm tired. I'll stay home from the meeting. I want my alarm to go off then. You know, that is the disease. There's a rattlesnake in my bed. It's not safe for me to go to sleep. Uh, until I get that rattlesnake out of the bed. And that's the program action is what gets that rattlesnake out of the bed. That's the disease trying to get me. And this thing about spiritual awakening, you know, it's like there's a rattlesnake in my bed, you know. Uh, I start to wake up, and then I'm sleepy, and I want to go back to sleep, and I says, oh, it's okay. And I go back to sleep, and the rattlesnake's still in the bed. You know, that's not a good idea. But that... <laughs> That's how the disease gets me. It doesn't just put a rattlesnake in my bed. It also makes me sleepy. You know, it does all this stuff. The disease is a SOB. Okay? If a person acted the way the disease acted, I, 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 I you know, <laughs> you ought to have a justified resentment. You know? Um, but I certainly would react. I would take actions to protect myself from that person. The disease is me. You know, it's hard to protect myself from me. But I've got to sometimes artificially tell myself things like this. You know, this is an emergency. I just I just had a feeling like I don't want to go to the meeting. That's an emergency. Well, is that crazy? Oh, maybe it is. But I tell you what, 
It's not crazier than the stuff that I goes through my head that gets me to act out. And if I have to do, think of something crazy to get myself to go to a meeting, okay. You know, so even in the worst case, if I'm totally wrong, and you know uh, about what's going on in your unconscious, the, the results are going to be good compared to, you know, if I'm right and and you know, you know you you don't act on that, then so. I've never found anybody lose their job or their family or their their freedom or their life for taking uh, the the program too seriously and taking lust too seriously. It tells me that I shouldn't take the program tells me I shouldn't take myself too seriously, but it doesn't say that I shouldn't take this disease seriously. It doesn't say say that I shouldn't take my recovery seriously. And it doesn't say, it doesn't say that I shouldn't take you seriously. You know this is important. Our lives are important, and 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 lust takes the ability to to have a meaningful life away, and recovery gives it back to us. So anyway, so. Let's see. We are now on page seventy-two. And breaking this into little sections so that it goes on to. Okay. Um, Frank, you want to read the next section? Right. sponsor. As we get into the steps, we find it indispensable to rely for help from those we have gone who have gone this way before. Twelve-step program is the term commonly used as sponsor. What we call a person doesn't matter. We don't have to call them anything. Asking for help, accepting suggestions, are what bring results. Experienced members advise getting a temporary sponsor as soon as one is serious about recovery. Later, when we were better established in the fellowship, we can choose another. We draw from our addiction condition in a state of emotional and spiritual shock and persist for some time. Our sexual organs so separated us from reality and others that make appear to others as not being there. As being not there. We cannot see the truth about ourselves because we are lost inside ourselves. For some time we suffer from tunnel vision, nearsightedness, farsightedness, astigmatism, all of them put together, anything but normal vision. Some gentle or not so gentle holding up of the mirror and prodding are usually necessary. Above all, we need an example of a flight that is making it. We take responsibility for our own recovery, but we don't come I mean, isolated and charge it. We surrender to God and take direction from the sponsor. Thus, we go to meetings to start making our connection with people. Alone, we cannot make the transition to reality. Perfection 
and the sponsor is neither necessary or possible. Taking the action of getting out of ourselves is what counts. Even though this may not be what you feel like doing, the sponsor can help us conquer the delusion that we should do only what we feel like doing. Take the action the sponsor says and feelings will flow. If you wait for the feelings first, it will never happen. Discover that in-depth ego depression is one keys to sobriety and growth. And asking for help often helps us achieve this. Asking for help is one way we start the dismantling the wall of ego we built so carefully around ourselves. And reaching out to another, we reach out to the undiscovered best in ourselves. This confirms our commitment to sobriety. Because the beginning of that radical change of attitude from being the center of the universe. I wanted to stay in charge. That's why God in healing could never get to me. The few absolute requirements that the prospective sponsor should have but a period of comfortable sexual sobriety including progressive victim over lust surely I must. Another requirement that he or she be ahead of us working the step. Norms that men sponsor men and women sponsor women. We follow direction and make regular contact. Being face to face when possible once a week or more, especially in the beginning. Some newcomers find daily phone contact, phone contact very helpful. The one who needs help does the calling. We give up the old idea of being catered to. Having sponsors with our particular form of acting out doesn't seem to matter as much as having those who incorporate the principles of steps and traditions in their lives and who walk like they talk. Why sponsors know they can't carry the sexaholic? They can only carry the message of their own recovery. Thus, they do not be involved in giving advice and bearing responsibility for the person. Likewise, we do not become dependent on the sponsor in a way we were with parents, spouses, lovers, and professionals. The goal of a good sponsor is eventual independence of spiritual and emotional maturity of the individual to help the person start walking the right path in the right direction. Why sponsor will always let the person know that their relationship alone is not enough. The person is going to have to make his or her connection with the group and become part of. Typically, when you come to the program, all kinds of personal problems are uppermost in their minds. Any separation or divorce, problems of romance and occupational health, legal or money crisis. Many of us felt that if only the problems would go away, we would be okay. But we do not realize it's because of and within these very problems that the program works. The program doesn't work in a vacuum. The only works in day to day evidence for all of our lives. Trial, tribulation, pain, the soil in which our steps can germinate, take root, and find the fruition in our lives. Thus, every problem, no matter how small or great, every crisis, resentment, pain, Illness, stress, conflict, depression, 
any and all of them without exception can be turned to good. Every time we feel overwhelmed, our sponsor can point way out of self-pity, resentment, or fear, and into right thinking. Helping us say, I thank God for the good, seemingly bad as necessary for my growth. Thy will, not mine, be done. The value the sponsors receive, if they are where they should be, is the experience of working their own program the way otherwise impossible. There is something only working with others can give us. It's truly a gift, even if the one seeking help is ungrateful and doesn't stay sober. We help expecting nothing in return. The measure we receive is the measure we give of ourselves to another. Thanks, Frank. Frank. A pretty long section. Um, Getting an essay sponsor. The word indispensable is used. What does that mean? I mean, I think it means if I try doing it without this, then I am going to fail. And that is probably true. Um, The term commonly used as sponsor, what we call the person doesn't matter. And we don't have to call them anything. Asking for help and accepting suggestions are what brings results. This is a good, very good little thing here because I have seen, I haven't yet done this, and I hope I don't. I hope I have seen enough from the results of other people's research that I don't have to do any of my own. But I've seen people uh, call someone their sponsor, but never call them. And um, so they don't ask for help and they don't accept suggestions. And and to me, a sponsor, you know, I, I uh, there was a line in a movie um, like you can pretend to be a father, but you can't pretend to show up or something like that. And showing up is what a father does. So the idea of this this movie, the person was not a, a real father. And 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 so if I'm a sponsee, you know, I've got to show up. I've got to show up in that relationship. And this is what being a sponsee means. It doesn't care whether it doesn't matter whether I call it sponsee or not. If I am asking for help and accepting suggestions, that's where the result comes from. Why do I ask to have why do I have to ask for help? You know, that lack of powerlessness is my dilemma. Accepting suggestions. Why do I have to do that? Uh, well, you know, I I if I don't do that, I can also get results. I get the same results that I've been getting. And if I'm content with that, then I don't have to accept suggestions. But the reason I'm in these rooms is because that did not work. I did do my own research on that, and it was not uh, the kind of results that I, I want. And I wouldn't. Don't <laughs> but it's the kind of results we get when we don't accept suggestions. So... Um, and the other thing here is that sponsorship is not a marriage. I don't need an attorney to end the sponsorship relationship. Um, it's not. It's not a. It's not a failure. It's not a rejection. Um, and and I think for me that's important because otherwise there's a lot of pressure. You know, I mean that like you know if I don't you know if something if it 
if the relationship needs to change in some way, then that means I screwed up. And that's not always the case. You know, uh, um, so a lot of relationships have ended <laughs> in that way in my life. But, but the sponsorship ones, if I'm doing my best to follow instructions, if, I, if I'm not willing to follow a sponsor's instructions, I need, to, I need a new sponsor. I need, I need a sponsor whose instructions I'm willing to follow. And, um, you know, I can't, I can't do this part. I can't accept suggestions if I'm not willing to, 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 to uh, follow the directions. Um, there's a lot of clear-cut directions in this section. We surrender to God and take direction from the sponsor. Um, we start dismantling the wall of ego. Now, there are a few absolute requirements that the sponsor should have. But, but um, you know, God has done some really interesting things with sponsorship. There's a guy in AA who stayed sober for, you know, nearly 40 years. Uh, he and, a, and another guy who was about uh, three weeks behind him in sobriety, they sponsored each other for like 35 or 40 years. <laughs> now, I don't recommend that. You know, I don't think that would work very well for me. But there's no rules. Uh, the rules only the rules is that that you know I've got to truly be seeking God. I've got to act on, on the basis of that uh, seeking behavior. So anyway, uh, anybody else got a comment on this section? Anything to share about the process of getting an essay sponsor or being a sponsor? Of being a sponsee, of showing up for the relationship. Anybody got a clear-cut story of of, of uh, what it's like to to not show up and to show up? You mean fire a sponsee? Huh? You mean like fire a sponsee or something? Oh well, sure. It, I don't know if it if it uh, you know if if it seems. Uh, relevant to, to what, what's being said here or, you know, whatever. If it just is on your heart and share it, go yeah, for it. Just, for me, it's always hard because they call when they want they call when they want something, but they don't call at other times. <laughs> and so it's like I get a call at 1 o'clock, which I'm not opposed to, but you haven't called me for three weeks, and suddenly you're stressing about your exam or whatever. And so um, I, I just had somebody who said, yeah, I... I really don't like to do what other people do. I said, okay, that's fine. I don't really need to be your sponsor. You look like you seem to be, don't you think you're doing good on your own? I mean, I wasn't mean about it. I was like, okay, if that works for you. Um, and I didn't, I didn't take it personal, and, and, and I hope he didn't take it personal. But for me, that's, that's what I have to do. So. That sounds right to me. I, and I think I think one of my jobs as a sponsor that, I, that I, I've got to show up for the relationship too. And if if somebody is doing something that I think isn't going to work, I think I need to let them know that. I mean, they, they ask me for guidance. Now they may not they may not agree with me. They may not follow what I suggest. I could even be wrong. But I think I need to say that to them. And and then also. The thing that I learned from a guy is that the sponsorship has to work for both people. It's not just about the sponsee. And, um, but, you know, I mean, successful sponsorship 
is not getting someone to stay sober, it's I stay sober. And so I, I've also got to look at it from that perspective. <laughs> You know, and, and it really does, I cannot, you know, the, the decision, it's like an automatic decision. I mean, it's not automatic. I mean, I have got to make choices about how, you know, I, I allot my time. I, I, I'm not unlimited in that regard. I've got to make choices. But there's something I know that when I'm doing uh, sponsorship, it's like I've gotten beyond any question in my mind. Am I going to do this? It's like, no, I, this, this is what I do. I mean, this is this is if if I'm a sexaholic, I act out no matter what. That's me without this. And so I can be a sexaholic pursuing a uh, you know a spiritual death, or I can live life on a spiritual basis. Uh, and for me, that means this is the, I, I, my choice today. I want to be a sober sexaholic, and this is what a sober sexaholic does. And there's no two ways about it. Now. If the thing is, though, I've seen people who have perfectly good programs that that do things that would never work for me. You know, when I say they have perfectly good programs, I'm talking about the results they get. If I were to compare what they're doing with what my sponsor told me to do, it'd have been like way off the map. And uh, you know, it's like, but it's working for them. So I think, by the same token, that means what I'm doing is working for me. It may not be the right thing for somebody else. So I, I uh, like, like, like you said that the, um, uh, you know, I've got, I've got to keep the open mind. It's just like, you know, if somebody thinks what they're, I would never change what I was doing if I thought it was working. I'd never do it. And uh, I, I, I don't want to expect anyone else to do that. I, I, I give my sponsees permission to do whatever they want. Because they're going to do that anyway. And when I do that, I don't have to be a victim of what they choose. And uh, that really helps me. Uh, I, think, I think I'm more useful to others when I do that. Because um, I just don't get caught up. And I don't try to fight something that I'm powerless over. Uh, but I love it when people choose uh, to follow the instructions and get results and to see the results in their lives. Uh, it helps me remember the results from my life. It helps me stay connected to the program. It helps me keep hope uh, that I can do this another 24 hours. I've watched lots of people with long-term sobriety lose it much longer than me uh, and that could happen to me I've got the same disease that the rest of us have in here so um, I'm, I'm about I'm about uh, uh, I'll, I'll talk out um, does anyone have anything to share before we close up well I'll just add I mean I've never read this section um, I thought it was good. I could see some parts where um, selfish. So I, I appreciate their you. Actually, yeah, more than sexaholic. More than sponsorship exposes my defects mm-hmm. like nothing else. It just tears me up, man. Brings out the worst in me. 
but it's also probably more effective than most anything else I ever do, too. You mean being a sponsor? Yes. Is that what I said? Yeah, well, you, you, you said sponsorship, and I didn't yes, know which. Yes, that's what I'm talking about, sponsoring other people. Um, man, it tests my patience. It, it exposes my inability or my tendency to avoid conflict like nothing else. Um, and it's just... Um, yeah, it puts a puts a laser on my, my, my character defects. And, um... Anyway. But it is... It's also a laboratory, you know. Just learn about the disease. And, um... Learn about my addiction to other people. No, um, it's a trip. It's a trip. <laughs> More fun than the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the bouncer at the Jerry Springer show. Support <laughs> it all. I can't enjoy it. <laughs> He's got his own show now. <laughs> really? Yeah. Was it I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to the Daily Reprieve by going to donate thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.